please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and verse 18. Romans 4 and verse 18. Abraham, against all hope, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body to be dead when he was about a hundred years old, nor yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the words it was credited to him were not written for his sake only, but also for us. To whom it shall be credited if we believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so we rejoice in hope, the glory of God, not only so, but we also boast in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces patience. Patience produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's welcome Dr. R.T. Kendall. Hope is a certain and confident expectation regarding the future, realizing that you will not be disappointed, that God will show up, that victory is at hand. Faith is believing God. Hope is expecting God. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what is heard will be heard as you intend and applied as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I might be your transparent vehicle to convey everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. I ask that this will be a life-changing word, and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you uh, may know, you may not know, that when we first came to England, it wasn't that I would become the minister of Westminster Chapel. I was invited to do a research degree at Oxford, and in 1973, Louise and T.R., Melissa, they were ages uh, six and three, come to England and uh, expecting to stay only three years. But I have people ask me all the time, how were those three years at Oxford? And I say, they were terrible. They were the worst three years we'd ever experienced. Really? You had the privilege of being at Oxford? I said, I hated every minute of it. Why? Well, not because they're all snobs there, but, which they are, but that wasn't the reason. I had no hope that I would end well. When I got there and realized that I had been thrust into a system that was alien to me, I had no idea what I was getting into. Because all the British students there have been brought up in the British system. And you go from strength to strength, and in those days, O-levels and A-levels and, and so forth. And here I come from the hills of Kentucky. You may have heard me say that uh, Kentucky was next to last, at the very bottom, 
of educational standards. Arkansas was at the bottom. That's why we had a slogan in those days, thank God for Arkansas, or we would have been at the bottom. And here I come to Oxford to do this degree, and I find out early on that 50% fail. And that includes those that have been brought up in the system. And I knew of one friend who'd come over from America with a PhD. He failed. <laughs> and it was awful. And I had no joy working, fearing that I'd go back to America in humiliation, that I just didn't cut it. But I remember uh, three years later, uh, I was getting ready to turn in my thesis. And I said to my supervisor, Dr. Barry White, I said, will I pass? He said, I don't know. I said, well, one ought to know by now. He said, it's a wicked world. <laughs> I go into my oral exam, nervous, shaking like a leaf. But I'd been told a day or two before, you will not find out if you pass at the Vivo. But if they say something like, I've made a few corrections for the copy that will go into the Bodleian, it's a sign you've passed. So I go in and sit there before these two professors. It's an austere moment. And at the end, 40 minutes later, one says, I've made some corrections for the copy that will go into the Bodleian. I went across the street, I called Louise, I said, I passed. <laughs> but that was when I had hope. I waited to the end. Didn't get the official word for weeks later. But I now had hope. Now, hope and faith are sometimes used interchangeably. But there's a difference between the two. In 1 Corinthians 13 at the end, Paul said, now abideth faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. Well, a couple weeks ago, I spoke to you on faith, which is believing God. Today, I want to deal with hope, which is expecting God. And down the road, we will come to the subject of love. All right. Hope is that certain and confident expectation regarding the future that you know you will not be disappointed, that God will show up. Victory is at hand. Hope is faith elevated to a higher level. And so what I want to do today is to say something that will give everyone here hope. And Paul tells us the road to hope. He puts it like this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And once you get there, says Paul, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now, there are two ways to come to this hope. That is to say, two ways to understand it or to receive it. Sometimes God will give you an infallible internal witness by the Holy Spirit that you are going to achieve what you wanted to achieve. God can do that. The funny thing is, I never got that those three years at Oxford. I prayed and prayed, Lord, will I pass? I'd open my Bible, give me a verse, and uh, it was sometimes like I'd get the verse, uh, Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> and uh, oh, that's not so good. Uh, give me one more, Lord, please, will I pass? Open the verse, it says, Go and do thou likewise. Please, can't you do better than that? Third time, what thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> that was a joke. 
But to achieve this hope, sometimes God can give you what you want. But sometimes he makes you wait. But sometimes along the way, he will give you a signal, a hint, and you think, I've got it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to do it. And Paul uses Abraham as an example. Now, in the Romans chapter 4, which is a very important verse, uh, I've said this to you before, not lately, but some of you may remember this. A friend of mine, John Paul Jackson, who went to heaven a year ago, uh, was given a vision. And I know him well enough that I, I believe him. And he said he was taken to heaven uh, an out-of-the-body experience, and uh, things were made clear to him. He described them, and I knew he wasn't making it up. And uh, while he was there, the messenger of God came in to say, I've come to announce the great move of God that's coming on the earth next, the next great move of God. The word is, the key to the next great move of God on the earth will be the book of Romans and especially chapter 4. I found that so encouraging. I don't know whether you agree with me, but it seems to me we're living in a time when the book of Romans is probably a dark book to many. People don't understand it. They don't read it. They don't care that much sometimes. Much less do they know what the fourth chapter of Romans is about. Well, when John Paul told me this story, the funny thing is, he didn't know much about Romans 4 himself. And I told him what it meant. The first part of Romans 4 is about justification by faith alone. And Paul uses Abraham as the example. Abraham had no children. He was at that time 85 years old. Sarah was 75. She was apparently barren. And one evening he was so discouraged, he said, Lord, you've given me all this wealth. Am I to leave all this to Eliezer, my servant? And God said to Abraham, go outside your tent, look up, count the stars. And there were hundreds, and of course we now know billions. God said to Abraham, so will your seed be, your seed from your body. Well, Abraham might have said, you don't expect me to believe that, do you? I'm 85, Sarah's 75. You expect me to believe that my seed will be like the sand of the seashore, the stars in the heavens? But guess what? Abraham believed it. And God said, good. For that, I count you righteous. And that became the Apostle Paul's Exhibit A for his teaching of justification by faith alone. So that we now believe this, that God sent his Son into the world, Jesus Christ, who was and is the God-man. Never forget, Jesus was god as though he were not man. He was man as though he were not God. He lived for 33 years. Early in his ministry, he made a claim. In fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones always said, the most stupendous claim that Jesus ever made was in Matthew 5, 17, when he said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That's an amazing claim that I will fulfill the law. Nobody else had ever done it. But it's a stupendous claim. That means that he had to live sinlessly, 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, every day of his life. But then on the cross, he uttered the words just before he died, it is finished. That meant he had accomplished what he said he would do. 
You might like to know that the three words, it is finished, is the translation of a Greek perfect tense phrase, tetelestai, which was a colloquial expression in the ancient marketplace that meant paid in full. So what happened was that Jesus, dying on the cross, fulfilled the law for us. And what Paul is saying in Romans, and especially chapter 4, that if we will do what Abraham did, he believed the promise. All we do is believe the promise of the gospel, that when you trust the blood of Jesus, all that he did for you is put to your credit as though you lived perfectly 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, every day of your life. That's the way God sees you, because your trust is not in your good works. All right, that's the first part of Romans 4. But the second part is where this same Abraham is given a major trial, a very major trial. What had happened was that things weren't happening for him. After a year or two, Sarah is still not pregnant. And she says to Abraham, maybe you should sleep with my maiden, my handmaiden, Hagar, because it would be your seed, and for some reason that was not regarded as immoral in those days. And so trying to make good the promise, Abraham slept with Hagar, and he says to himself, should the baby be male? Well, I guess that's the way God wanted to do it. Thought it would be through Sarah, but if it's a male child, we'll, we'll accept it. And, and it was. And he was named Ishmael. And not what Abraham wanted, but it was okay. And he, Abraham not only accepted Ishmael, but that was his boy. That was his only son. And he was bound with him. He loved him. And for the next 13 years, Abraham sincerely believed that Ishmael was the promised child and then one day, God said, oh, by the way, Abraham, Ishmael is not the promised son. Sarah will conceive. Isaac is coming. You would have thought Abraham would have been thrilled. But no, he says, please, I'm happy with Ishmael. Please. In fact, his words are, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Sorry, Abraham. Sarah will conceive. Do you know what? Just as Abraham believed the promise concerning his seed, being as the sand of the sea, we're told that with this regard, so Abraham believed it. And what we have here is the issue of inheritance. Because the same people that are justified by faith alone, sooner or later, come to terms with whether they come into their inheritance. Every Christian is called to come into his or her inheritance. Is this new to you? You are called to come into your inheritance. Every Christian is called to come into their inheritance. Some do, some don't. Some are justified by faith. Righteousness is put to their credit, and they will go to heaven. But there are those who, for some reason, don't persist in faith. Abraham is the same person that now is told Sarah will conceive. And Abraham believed that too. And he's an example of someone who comes into their inheritance. And so you've heard the phrase before, Hope against hope? This comes from Romans 4.18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and became the father of many nations. And he's been told now that Sarah will conceive. And he's come to term with it. And he says without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He was 100 years old. And since Sarah's womb was also dead, yet 
He did not waver through unbelief through the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And what happened was that Abraham had been elevated, as it were, from faith to hope. Because hope is faith elevated to a higher level. Faith is believing God. Hope is expecting God. And Abraham came to that level. I would like to think that everybody here, if you haven't come to the level of hope, that you will before this day is over, and that God might use this word. A couple of weeks ago when I spoke on faith, I made a statement that I believe there's someone here that you're going through the greatest trial of your whole life, and you're in the middle of it now. And perhaps that person is back here today, and I'm talking to you. I'm talking to anyone here that right as I speak, you are in the middle of the greatest trial you've ever had, and you just want hope that the nightmare will end. You want hope that your prayer will be answered. Maybe you're praying for healing, or the healing of a loved one, or the salvation of, of a loved one, or a marriage being put back together, or for that financial reverse that has brought you right down. Somehow God will step in, but the likelihood, statistically, is like that of Abraham at the age of 100 and Sarah at the age of 90 having a baby. But you know what? Abraham came into that hope. He did, and that was the reason he could do what he did. He came into his inheritance. You say, well, R.T., how can I come into that? Well, listen to Paul. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only so, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, here is where the water hits the wheel. To rejoice in your sufferings. I say not all Christians come into their inheritance. Do you want to know why? It's because if suffering comes, they say, how could you do this to me, God? Thanks a lot. Or as I put it two weeks ago, when you hit a wall, and you feel that God has betrayed you, some say, nothing will stop me. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I'm pressing on. And that is Abraham. The thought that he at the age of 100, Sarah at the age of 90, could have a baby. That's enough to put anybody off. This is not fair. But Abraham did it. And you say, well, how can I come to the equivalent where I can believe that this nightmare will end what I want to see achieved? Well, if you could take this, and I say it as lovingly as I can, to rejoice in your sufferings. I call it dignifying the trial. You say, well, what kind of suffering? Any kind. Any kind. Whatever it is. Instead of complaining and murmuring and griping, Instead, you say, I, I, I know God has allowed this. There's a reason for it. There's purpose in it. And you need to know, whatever that situation is, if you can take it, you ready for this? God is the architect of the whole thing. And the trial, the trial will end.
And every trial has its built-in time limit. You need to know that the trial you're in will end. You see, we all think it's going to last forever. No. God knows how much we can bear. There's a built-in time limit. And then you won't get noticed that it's going to be over in five minutes or five days. But one day, you think, it's over. And then in heaven, God gives you a report card. Pass or fail. If you grumbled the whole time and murmured and complained, I'm sorry. He says, you failed. And you'll just have to wait till one day he gives you another chance, gives you another trial. But if you pass, God says, good. And now you're on the way to hope. And so he says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Now, this is the key to coming into your inheritance. It's persistent faith. You see, there's two kinds of faith in the Bible. Saving faith, persistent faith. What's the difference? Saving faith, that's when you transfer the trust that you had in your good works to what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's saving faith. But then there's persistent faith. That's how you respond. And when you hit a wall and suffering comes, what happens then? Do you back down and say, I, I can't take this anymore? Or are you, do you press on? And so suffering produces this perseverance or patience or persistence. And then persistence produces character. You say, well, I, I don't know that character is anything I'm particularly interested in. Well, it's happening. You need to know it's a very important ingredient. You see, your hope is faith taken to a higher level, and it comes in a certain sequence in your walk with Christ, because the road from faith to hope is fraught with certain prerequisites which normally precede it. Well, Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and so one thing leads to another. Suffering leads to perseverance. Persons, perseverance produces character, and character, hope. And the day will come when God will give you hope. And Paul says hope does not disappoint. Well, now, there abides these three things, faith, hope, love. St. Augustine said, faith is to believe what we do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what we believe. And that's what hope is. Faith raised to a higher level. And it emerges by persistent faith. And the reward of this is to see what we have believed. Uh, the Greek word is elpis. It means an absolute feeling of certainty, an absolute feeling of certainty based upon an objective truth. Well, now, the question is, uh, can I have what Paul had? Can I have what Abraham had, had? Well, faith is believing without seeing. Hope, though it is internal, is seeing what you have believed. And it's knowing that you will not be disappointed. Uh, we may say to a person, I hope to see you. And that's subjective. But with hope we say, I have hope, I will see you. And Paul could refer to the second coming as that blessed hope, because we're going to see him. If this is objective, it's an objective truth. In fact, John says, the one who has this hope is purified. You're purified by this hope. You purify himself as Jesus is pure as you wait for this. Well, this Greek word elpis is used 35 times. And I want us to see two things about it. One, your hope of inheritance. And the other is hope in impossibility. Well, now, inheritance. Back to that word again. 
It's what we get by persistent faith. All Christians are called to come into this inheritance. And it is three things. Internal, external, eternal. What's the difference? Internal. That is what goes on inside in your heart. Your attitude toward trial. Whether you complain, murmur. External. That's your calling. You may be a dentist, a secretary. You may be a, a doctor, a lawyer. You may be what you think is an insignificant in an insignificant position, but if that is your external calling, that's what is God's will for you. Eternal is your reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And those who do not come into their inheritance forfeit a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. External. Don't ask what is that. What I mean by that is don't ask. Uh, will I marry this person? Don't ask. What will I be doing a year from now? Don't ask. Will I get this job? But ask, am I keeping my eyes on Jesus? Ask, am I dignifying the trial? Colin Dyer, his external inheritance, he's senior minister of Kensington Temple. But let me tell you, how he got here. You want to know? I can tell you. It's because years ago, when Colin and Amanda had Laura, who never could walk or talk, instead of their shaking their fists saying, God, how could you do this? They dignified the trial. They accepted it as a gift of God. And God says, Colin, I'm proud of you. I can use you now. And this is the thing. What you are going through right now, you're wanting to get it over with. Listen, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces persistence, patience, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. And so I'm saying to you, do not give up. And someday you will stand before God and you talk about getting the report card. You're standing before Jesus Christ himself. There will be those who hear from the lips of Jesus when he looks at you straight in the eye and says, well done. But there will be those, sadly, saved by fire. Their works will be burnt up. They make it to heaven, yes, but no reward. I've had people say to me, R.T., I don't care whether I get a reward. I just want to make it to heaven. I understand that kind of thinking, but I'll tell you this, you won't feel that way then. And when you stand before God, you won't feel that way then. And the realization of what you were made for on this earth comes to fruition. And so your inheritance, it's a word used interchangeably with Crown, prize, reward. Well, you may ask, can you know in advance that you'll get this reward at the judgment seat of Christ? Paul didn't know in advance because in 55 AD, he wrote the letter to the Corinthians. And in 55 AD, he talked about inheritance and reward. Here's the way he put it. And he was referring to the games, the Olympics. He said, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? That's the gold medal. Run in such a way as to get the prize. But in the Olympics, only one person could get the gold. But in this race, we're not in competition with each other. And God will look at each one of you individually. God loves every person as if there were no one else to love, said St. Augustine. 
And God has a plan for you in detail as though there were no one else. And you are not in a race looking at somebody else saying, are they better than I? Are they ahead of me? No, you're not in competition. Our job, keep our eyes on Jesus. So Paul went on to say, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body, make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Why, why was Paul beating his body? Do you think he was trying to get to heaven? No, 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 no. That's a given. He had that. Once saved, always saved. He wasn't worried about that. But he couldn't bear the thought that his own converts would grow in grace and he himself would somehow lapse, start complaining in trial, fall into sin. He knew that God is no respecter of persons. And he did not want at the judgment seat of Christ when all secrets will be laid bare to miss that. And that is an eternal inheritance. So Paul didn't know in 55 AD. However, when he writes to Timothy, and you read this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 10 years later, approximately 10 years later, Paul is now in prison in Rome. And uh, he's waiting any moment to hear a knock on his cell door by the jailer. Say, Paul, your time is up. Come with me. And he knew at any moment he would be beheaded. So he's now able to say to Timothy, he said, Timothy, I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He's able to say, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. Paul could now say safely that he got it. He had finished well. But you see, we're all in the process of finishing. I actually got an email two days ago from somebody who said, R.T., you have finished well. <laughs> Was that from anybody here? Just because I'm 80 years old, <laughs> my cardiologist says I'll live till I'm 90. <laughs> I haven't finished well. All right. First, hope of inheritance. Second, hope in impossibility. Because Paul could say, even though, sorry, he's, he's quoting now Abraham, who, though he was 100 and Sarah was 90, uh, hope against hope kept him going. And this is what you've got to do. I'm addressing that person, not you're on top of the world, but because you're in that trial, deep trial. Maybe you came to church today as a last-ditch effort. Maybe things have been so hard lately you just thought of giving up. And you thought, oh, well, I'll go one more time. And if I should be talking to somebody like that, do you realize how much God cares about you? It's no accident that you're here. He's, he's on your case. He's on your case. And so hope against hope means when you continue to hope, although the outlook does not warrant it. And so Abraham now believes that Sarah will conceive. He had come to that place. Let me ask you a question. Are you in a hope against hope situation? 
something has happened that your best friend betrayed you. Your spouse was unfaithful to you. There's been a financial reverse, and the outlook means it's impossible. The result of that examination, no hope. You see, God has a purpose in everything he allows. And he's on your case. So the prerequisite to hope is rejoicing in our sufferings. James says, consider it pure joy. And the word consider is the exact same Greek word that is used for righteousness being put to our credit. It's the word impute, puts to your charge. So you that have transferred your trust from good works to Jesus' blood, you are seen by God as righteous. Really? You say, nobody thinks I'm righteous. I don't know that I feel righteous, but God says you are. It's imputed. You impute something. You put to the charge of God imputes to you righteousness. And so when you have any kind of suffering, James says, instead of griping about it, moaning, consider it pure joy. Because this is the way forward that you come to this hope. When you've got this hope, you know you're not going to be ashamed. In the meantime, as you're waiting for the hope to emerge, God is doing something. You say, well, I'd sure like to know what he's doing. Well, I can tell you. It produces perseverance, perseverance character. You're learning a lot. You don't enjoy it. Our three years at Oxford, horrible. But God had a purpose in it. Or I could tell you, many years ago, while I was a student in Nashville, Tennessee, at my old college, I don't have time to go into the details. Some of you have heard the story anyway. But overnight, literally, within a 24-hour period, I was taught salvation by grace. I knew I couldn't lose my salvation. I knew that what the Bible talks about, election, predestination, never believed that in my life. Hated the thought. Suddenly I thought, this is true. And I saw it all. And I knew I was going to have a ministry. And in those days, God actually gave me some visions. And, and, and one or two or more said I would be in a ministry that would go around the world. And I didn't even think in terms of world ministry. I was just a provincial Nazarene. I just wanted to get a, a church to pastor in some town, raise up children, nice home. I never thought outside that kind of box. But God says, I'm going to use you to go around the world. So when I tell my dad about my new theology, I, I'm thinking he's going to be thrilled. And dad was very upset with me. He says, son, you've broken with God. I said, no. God is more real to me than ever. No, you've recanted on the very things you've been taught. He even named me after his favorite preacher, R.T. Williams. And I was earmarked to be a good Nazarene. I said, no, dad, God's going to use me. How is he going to use you? Well, I, I, I told him something I shouldn't have. I was trying to impress him, and I was thinking of one or two visions I had. I, I said, uh, I'm going to have an international ministry. <laughs> you know, he says, really? When? <laughs> that was in 1956. I said, one year from now. Really? Will you put that in writing? Sure. He got out a sheet of paper. I.R.T. Kendall will, from the date below, be an international ministry. I actually thought it happened in th three months. A year later, I wasn't even in the ministry. <laughs> Five years later, you know what I was doing? I was going up to house after house, 
Hello, I'm R.T. Kendall. I've come to show you something new and different for your home. I was a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman. My dad was totally vindicated now. He was so hurt, they'd go up to him and say, Mr. Kendall, how's your son R.T. doing? Well, he's a door-to-door vacuum cleaner. Well, what, what's, what's R.T. doing? He's a door-to-door I didn't hear you. What's our, what, what, what did you say? He's a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> Hurt my dad to have to tell people that. Hurt me. All my fellow students were out pastoring churches. But perseverance breeds character. I wouldn't take anything in the world for those days. I waited 22 years. In 1978, I'm now minister of Westminster Chapel, coming on a train from Edinburgh to King's Cross, London. Dad, out of the blue, said, Son, you were right. I was wrong. I'm proud of you. Be, you wait for things like that. Hope will not make you ashamed. And so that was Abraham. He did not waver through unbelief, but was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Are you a child of Abraham? Yes, you can do what he did. And God has a plan for you. And even though if you feel that no one has noticed... Life has passed you by. You've worked unappreciated. Reminds me of a Southern Baptist evangelist, not evangelist, missionary. I think he'd been an evangelist and went into the mission field and went to Africa. A dear old man, you can read about it on the internet, the whole story. It was 100 years ago. American Southern Baptist, during the time when Theodore Roosevelt was president of the United States. And he serves as a missionary in Africa for 40 years. He thought the time should come, he should retire. So he sent word to his mission board and some friends to say, I'll be coming home. As the ship was sailing into the harbor in New York, as it was beginning to dock, a band was playing. And the missionary was so chuffed, tears filled his eyes. He said, they shouldn't have done this. They're just, they're just making a fuss over me. And he was so excited, and he put his suitcases down, and he's at the front of the queue to be first off the boat, when suddenly a policeman says, stop here, sir. Oh. It turned out that President Theodore Roosevelt was on the same ship. <laughs> he had been game hunting in Africa. The band was for him. As it turned out, the old missionary was last off the boat. He walked down the gangplank, puts these suitcases down, begins to look. Not a soul to meet him. Picks up his suitcases, walks over about three blocks, finds a third-rate hotel, falls on the bed, and he's weeping. Lord, I serve you for three years. I come home. There's nobody here. President Roosevelt, three weeks game hunting, he comes home and a band is playing. But then he heard the Holy Spirit speak clearly, but you're not home yet. I reckon that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared. The feeblest saints shall win the day though death and hell obstruct the way. 
We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and also in our sufferings because it leads to perseverance, that leads to character, it leads to hope. And when you get there, you've got it. You won't be disappointed. Who is here today that needs this word? Who is here today that you don't have that hope of heaven? Heaven is not your home at the moment. If you died right now, you wouldn't be going to heaven. You'd be going to hell. I'm sorry. But that can all change. You're here on purpose. We can sort out things. If I just knew the answer to this question, can you tell me, do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Do you? If you were to stand before God, you will. And he were to ask you, he might. Why should I let you in? And it's the real thing. And you've got to come up with the answer right now. Nobody there to coach you, no parent, no relative, no friend, it's between you and God. What would you say? What would you say? If the thought that you're trusting the blood of Jesus or the, his death on the cross or something equivalent of that doesn't come to your mind, dear friend, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything. But that could all change. It can change right now. I'm going to give you a prayer. You can pray this prayer. You don't need to say it out loud. You don't even need to close your eyes. Come from your heart. Just say this, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life.